Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. I have suppliers, one in Ohio and in another one, primarily in California, that has access to a number of grapes and grape juice throughout California and also throughout the world. But most of my product, about 80, 85% of it comes from California. Napa, Sonoma Valley, one of my favorites comes from Lodi Valley in California. And what they do is they bring in those grapes and they do all the processing from the grapes. They de-stem it, they press it, crush it, and then I get the juice from that. So they package that juice and ship it to me. So when it arrives, I get Merlot grape juice, Chardonnay grape juice, and then we do all of the blending and fermentation on site. So we carry out the winemaking part of it outside of the agricultural vineyard part of it. And then we go all the way through bottling. We have some that then we barrel age. We have a large boater that allows us to barrel age about 250 gallons of wine at a time. Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan, your host for Kettering University's Horsepower to Hyperloops podcast. And that was Matt Shero, GMI and Kettering 98, and a one-time mechanical engineer, talking about the California source for the wines he makes at his winery and brewery in Fenton, Michigan. Our discussion in this episode, The Wine Engineer, explores his journey from a corporate executive to a wine, beer, and spirits entrepreneur. Matt Shero, co-owner and co-founder of Fenton Winery and Brewery. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Tim, for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Matt, thank you for joining us. You're the first winemaker we've spoken to. As you know, we talk to a lot of Kettering graduates. A lot of them are in automotive and mobility, but we have quite a few in other fields. And I'm excited to talk to you about this sort of unusual field. In fact, I'm guessing you're the only winemaker, you're the only one I know of, that's graduated from GMI or Ketting. Do you know of any others? I don't know any personally, but I'd certainly love to meet them if they're out there, but I don't (laughs) know any personally. Well, I think it's interesting. You've got a very going concern. It's been going for, you just celebrated your 15th anniversary at uh, Fenton Winery and Brewery, correct? Correct. Yeah, we just celebrated at the end of January, January 26th specific. This is a company you started, and uh, we'll get into later how you started it and why you started it. But you started in 2008, 2009, and I guess we'll tell people you're in Fenton on the corner of North Long Lake Road and and Fenton Road at the blinking yellow light in the former Creative Woods Products facility. So a lot of people may know that. It's a wonderful facility. Uh, You have a lot of great outdoor space in the spring. So that's enough of my introduction. Tell me about it. Tell me about the company. Tell me its scope, because you do quite a few things down there. So tell me about Fenton Winery and Brewery. Yes, yeah, so we have a lot of things that we do here. So obviously, as their name says, we are a winery and a brewery. So we are a full production winery and a full production brewery. We have a tap room on site. Plus, we also have a banquet facility. We do 100 weddings a year. So the, the winery we produce anywhere from 20 to 22,000 bottles of wine per year. Most of that is sold on site. We do have some wholesale distribution that we do on a small scale but most of that's consumed on site. 
And then we have what's known as a seven barrel brewery. You can consider that each barrel is about two of your standard kegs. So we can, we have a small production. So it's about 14 kegs at most that we can brew at any particular time. So we have that. And then in July of 2022, we launched our Dream Machine Distillery as a brand of Fenton Winery and Brewery. And we produce a number of different spirits out of our distillery. And we sell those in-house at our tap room. There are certainly other winemakers in Michigan. There are vineyards, which you aren't. And we'll talk about that for a minute. Certainly other breweries, but there's very few, if any, brewery, distillery, winemaking, and convention space. Or it's not convention, it's meeting space, right? Correct. Yeah, we do a little bit of everything here. So we, we initially started out as a winery. And then about two years after we launched, we added the brewery. So we be officially became Fenton Winery and Brewery about 2010, 2011. And then the addition of the banquet facility um, in 2014 and 15, when we held our first wedding, kind of pushed us toward wanting to add a broader array of products. So we made the decision in late 2020, early 21 to add the distillery. That way we can offer a full array of your wine, beer, spirits, and not only does it complement the banquet facility allowing all our guests to have that full bar that many of them look for but we can also sell in our tap rooms when you come into our tap room we have something for really anybody and we even craft our own sodas we have some cider so we just we make just about anything you could want as far as alcoholic beverages well let's let's take it one by one because first of all your banquet spaces accommodates 300 people am i right on that correct yep 285 seated and then we include our staff in there so 299 is the official capacity well let's start at the beginning tell me about the beer first of all has it changed since 2008 and, and what distinguishes your beer i love beer but i'm not a beer aficionado so i don't understand necessarily what makes one beer different than the other, except how it tastes to me. So tell me about your beer. When we launched our brewery in 2010, we were the 87th brewery in Michigan. And if you know, if you're familiar with the industry, there's over 400 now. So we're actually considered one of the senior members within the brewing industry. So we started out just simple, very simple brewing system, about 15 gallons at a time. And we had four beers on tap. We had a light beer, an amber, an Irish stout and an, uh, an imperial nut brown, which is a higher alcohol nut brown. So we started as, as that. And as we grew, we continually added more taps where now we have 15 taps of beer, very broad range of product, anywhere from a light beer to a very heavy, dark imperial stout. And all of those different styles you can create by using, you determine those styles based on the grains that you input, what type of yeast you use, and then how you ferment it. And we focus on, I always focus on creating a balanced beer. Every brewery's got its style. We tend to produce a very taste for, very balanced beer, not necessarily to style all the time. We like to play around. We have some very neat beers, but we do have many that follow kind of style guidelines set by the industry. But they're all, in my opinion, very balanced, very high quality. We watch our quality very closely and make sure that anything that we sell is something that I would enjoy drinking. So you have now 15 different beers start compared to four when you started out. Correct. Well, then you went into the wine business. And what is interesting to me is the fact that you don't have a vineyard. So tell Correct. me how you be make wine without a vineyard. 
Yeah, so it, it is a very unique way to do it. And it's actually what attracted us to the industry very early on. My wife and I had, had been very passionate about wine. We've done a lot of wine tasting, visiting wineries throughout the state. And when we came across this concept of being able to open a winery without opening or having a vineyard, it was very intriguing. And when we made the decision to start the business, that's what we decided to do. So what I do is I have suppliers, one in Ohio and then another one primarily in California, that has access to a number of grapes and grape juice throughout California and also throughout the world. But most of my product, about 80, 85% of it comes from California, Napa, Sonoma Valley. One of my favorites comes from Lodi Valley in California. And what they do is they bring in those grapes and they do all the processing from the grapes. They de-stem it, they press it, crush it, and then I get the juice from that. So they package that juice and ship it to me. So when it arrives, I get Merlot grape juice, Chardonnay grape juice. And then we do all of the blending and fermentation on site. So we carry out the, the winemaking part of it outside of the agricultural vineyard part of it. And then we go all the way through bottling. We have some that then we barrel age. We have a large fodder that allows us to barrel age about 250 gallons of wine at a time. So we go through that whole process, but we didn't want to be farmers. We didn't want to have a vineyard. So being able to import that juice from California was a key ingredient to our early successes starting as a winery. I have a number of friends, having spent a lot of time in California and just by chance elsewhere, who actually have vineyards. And that's a very tough road to hoe, no pun intended. And it's also very susceptible, like all crops, but seemingly more to the weather even. I mean, you get a bad winter and your crop is gone and they're working nonstop. So now do you have your own bottling facility or do you bottle elsewhere? No, we actually bottle on site. So we have a small forehead bottler um, allows us to semi-automatically fill bottles and then we we have a pneumatic corker. So when we're bottling some of our larger tanks, one person can do it. But typically we have two people that are running, one's filling the bottle, one corking them and packaging them for sale. So, yeah, we have everything we need to do, we can do on site. And how long are you aging your wine for and what kind of barrels and so on are you aging it in? So in general, we have three types of wine here. So we have our fruit wines, which start out as a regular wine. We stop fermentation and then add fruit to it. Those wines, which actually are some of our best sellers, don't need to age at all. The aging process doesn't really improve fruit wines because of the, the amount of sugar in there. The, the subtleties from aging are kind of hidden. So our fruit wines don't need to age. Then we have our white wines. We don't have a particular time limit or time that we want to age those for. We will sell those right away. Some of them end up sitting for a few months. But the ones we're very particular on because my wife and I are very big red wine drinkers, aficionados of dry red wines. What we typically do is after bottling, after it's been finished, if it's going to be directly bottled, we'll bottle it right away. And then we'll age those for a minimum of one year finished in a bottle. If we want to do a barrel aged wine, then the time varies quite a bit because depending on what type of barrel I use and how much oak I want to impart on the flavor will vary. We, we can do some, if it's a newer oak barrel, it would be maybe two to three months. 
where some of our wines, I've got one going right now that's been aging since May of last year. So we're not too far away from coming up on a year with that. So it all depends on what flavor I'm looking for in my finished product and what type of wine it is. But our red wines, we will not sell it to the public till it's at least one year finished, aged in a bottle. Do you taste the juice that comes in to then determine about how and how long you're going to age it? Well, we'll typically, we'll sample the juice and everything as it goes along. But once it's finished in wine, before, say, it's going to be a barrel-aged red wine, once it's in the barrel, we'll say, okay, I think it's just from experience, I kind of know how long these wines need to age. But throughout the aging process, maybe once a month, I'll open the sample valve on the side of the tank, the photos, which is a large oak barrel, essentially. I'll open the sample valve, take a sample and see if it's where I want it to be. And over the last 15 years, I've kind of developed developed my tongue, my palate for how long it needs to stay in there. Because once you package it, it's going to continue changing. So my kind of my rule of thumb is say if it's going to be a barrel aged red wine, I always want it to taste just a little bit oakier when I'm sampling it than I want it to be when our customer eventually drinks it. Because I know once we bottle it, it's going to sit for a while and the oak's going to mellow out. And if it's exactly the way I want it when it's sitting in that barrel, it's going to mellow by the time it gets to my customer. So I've kind of trained myself to kind of over oak just a hair. I know it's going to mellow and then it's going to be that perfect taste when our, our customer opens the bottle. And how many wines do you have currently? We currently have, well, we just released uh, a couple new ones. So I think we're up to 18 to 20 different wines. We just released a vanilla bourbon dessert wine and then a mango citrus fruit wine. So those are just limited releases that we did for a 15-year anniversary. So, so we've got a few more now than normal, which typically happens around anniversary time because we kind of celebrate anniversary week. And part of that is always releasing new product. And this year we release new beer, wine, and spirits for our 15-year celebration. Now, tell me a little, when did you do the tap room? So when we started in 2008, we actually started in a small strip mall. It's about 2,100 square feet. It's about two miles south of where we're at now. Very simple tap room. We had what kind of your typical tasting room for a winery, but we didn't want it to be just a tasting room. So we kind of turned it into this lounge area, had a fireplace, couches, and really neat place where you would want to sit, have a few bites to eat, some wine. And we always had live music. So that was in 2008. And then 2010-11, the company that was next to us moved out. So we took over that space. We kind of moved our tap room or our tasting room into that space because at that time we had beer as well. So we moved in there, ended up having about 5,200 square feet of space there. And we were there until about 2014. And in that time, we found a property because we were leasing the, the strip mall location. We found a property a couple miles north of us a uh, five acre property with these two buildings. And we got it in an auction, actually won it in an auction, which was pretty interesting doing an auction. And it's like eBay and steroids because you're spending a lot more money than normally you would in an auction. But anyways, we got the auction and we built out the tap room in this new facility. So we, starting from that 2,100 square foot facility, expanding to about 5,000 square feet, we now have the tap room in a 10,000 square foot building it takes up just under half of that space, and then the rest of it set aside for our production of the wine, beer, and spirits. 
So, and we've even expanded inside. So we started a very small tap room and added, continually expanded the tap room within our own walls to where it's probably about 4,000 square feet total for the tap. Well, how many people can you seat in there? Well, we can see close to close to 100 in the tap room with our bar seating because we just added a new cocktail bar. So at the very back of the tap room is where we built a cocktail bar to complement the distillery that we opened. So we added some bar seats back there. So we actually have two different bars you can sit at when you come into the tap room, one in the front and one in the back. But we've got seating for close to 100. And then just right next to the tap room, we have what we call our barrel room, which is can seat anywhere from 48 to 50 people, kind of in a semi-private area for things like showers and birthday parties. But it also serves as an overflow area when we get really busy on Friday and Saturday nights. Instead of making you stand around and wait, you can always take a seat in our barrel room. So your menu is pretty extensive at this point. Am I not correct? Yeah. When we first started, when my wife and I first started in 2008, the menu consisted of cheese and crackers. And that was it. That was the extent of what we wanted to do. And we quickly found early on that we had created this place that people wanted to hang out while they would order two and three plates of cheese and crackers trying to fill themselves up while they're hanging out with us on a Friday and Saturday. So so we quickly started adding food. But now where we're at, we actually have a full-time chef. We have a number of kitchen employees, cooks, kitchen employees that create our fantastic menu of food. But we're best known for our pizzas. We do some baked sandwiches. We have a lot of different appetizers, and that's for our tap room. But they also have a completely different menu for our banquets, where you start getting into beef tenderloin and chicken marsala, and you get fancier food that you would expect when you're going to a wedding. And then we recently, just a few months ago, added, or this year added, brunch. So now we've got breakfast items on Sundays. Well, it strikes me that those are really two different and very demanding businesses. One, the wine and the beer. We'll get into the distillery in a minute. And then two, essentially the restaurant. I mean, that seems like a huge enterprise. Yeah, it's definitely been interesting. It is a number of different businesses all within the same thing that they all kind of run in sync with each other. Where we have, um, you know, we are a full production facility, so every beverage you drink here is made on site. So that in itself is a lot of work. So we have a full-time staff that handles all the production, and then we add in the tap room. So we're producing all the product for our restaurant, the tap room. And then even outside of that, then we have, so that's, we're open six days a week in the tap room. And then on the weekends and throughout the week, even we have a number of different banquets. We'll do up to 100 weddings a year. Plus, we have fundraisers and other banquets that we host up there. So that in itself is another business under our Fenton Winer and Brewery umbrella. So it's a lot of work, but we've built up a great team. Um, we're probably about 34, 35 employees right now. Um, How many not- of those are solely food oriented? Probably, I think we're at about 10 employees on the on the food side. And then we have some that are dedicated just to help run banquets. But a number of our staff are actually cross-trained. So we're very big on cross-training employees where, you know, you might be a server in the tap room, but a Friday or Saturday night, we'll need you as a server in the banquet hall, which is a, a different animal because you don't have that steady flow of people coming in. They all come in at once. They're all eating the same food. You know, it's a wedding, so you're kind of working around the wedding events where in the tap room it acts as a restaurant. So you have a number of employees or 
guests coming and going throughout an evening. Well, before we jump into the distillery, which I find amazing expansion, I can't help but notice that 2008 must not have been the <laughs> optimal time yeah, it was. to start a business. You ran into some headwinds with that that you didn't anticipate, right? Yeah, we definitely ran into some headwinds that we didn't anticipate. So when we first incorporated in July 31st, 2007, so it was right before the recession that hit in 2008 and the housing crisis. So we started and when you're doing wine and at that time, it's just the winery, so fit and winery, you have to go through a long licensing process. So you have to be approved by the state liquor control as well as the federal alcohol and tobacco and tax trade bureau they ultimately control your license so as you're going through that licensing process you know we're doing our build out and we had our build out completely done ready to go you know ready to turn on our lights and welcome our first guests while we were waiting for licensing and in that time we had finished the build out we're still waiting on the license that's when everything just went downhill and the housing crisis hit so here we were, we had spent all this money and left, you know, I'd left my full-time job to, to start this and we had a building and we we're ready to go. So we all just stuck our head down and plowed forward and got through the recession. It was just my wife and I very early on 2008, we always joked around, you know, the lights wouldn't be on if we weren't there because we literally were the only one, the only employees. I would work throughout the day doing production. Then my wife would come in in the afternoon and evenings and we'd run the bar. And it took a while before we hired our first employee. But back then you're always trying to find that, that silver lining. And for us, we knew other friends of ours that had businesses and were laying off employees. And for us, our silver lining was we had nobody to lay off. It was just the two of us. So we stuck through it. It wasn't easy. Especially when the recession hit, the first thing that happened was our home equity line of credit, which we were using closed. You know, our credit cards were being canceled for no reason other than the crisis. So that early funding we thought we had to kind of fall back on was no longer there. So to say we bootstrapped it that first year, first year and a half is definite understatement. And it was just sheer will, passion, and blood, sweat, and tears that we managed to get through that and continue to, you know, we've grown since. I love the entrepreneur small business. I've been that myself for many years. And you've got a very accomplished CPA and your wife. Yeah. Who's back there mixing scotches and sodas to survive. We're talking with Matt Shero, co-owner and co-founder with his wife, Ginny, Fenton Winery and Brewery in Fenton, Michigan. And we've been talking about the wine and the beer, the tap room. We started in 2008, but just this last year, you added Dream Machine. And you didn't add one product, you added a lot. So tell me about your distillery and what you're doing there. So the Dream Machine distillery, which wasn't called Dream Machine at the very start, it was just, it was essentially a dream. And during the pandemic in 2020, prior to the pandemic, we had looked at other options of bringing in spirits into our facility because we had a lot of weddings that wanted to have that full bar but because of the laws in the state you can only serve the alcohol that you make because we're manufacturing we could only sell beer we could only sell wine so we had always been looking to add on to that and for a while we had pursued potentially getting what they call a tavern license which would have allowed us to bring in spirits but at the end of the day what it would have required is we would have had to separate our taproom business from our bank facility. And my wife and I would have had to run those separately as two different businesses. 
And we finally made the decision that that's not what we wanted to do because we had started the business together. We had run it as a team this whole time. And we didn't want this to kind of break up that team where we had to have separate business. So at that point, the only other option was to make it ourselves. Now, we knew a lot about spirits, you know, because we definitely enjoy spirits and drinking. But knowing about that and then taking it through distillation, actually creating those products is a whole other thing. So we decided during 2020 and actually started in 20, January of 21 to pursue getting a distilling license, which required me doing a lot of research. I spent hundreds of hours watching videos, taking tutorials, reading books, doing an online university, a comprehensive 25-hour university that I watched probably four different times, but doing a lot of research on the production side, which was always been my responsibility. And then on the licensing. So along with learning how to do this stuff, the licensing process is very involved. Getting licensing for beer and wine is 10 times easier than doing it for a distillery. So so going through that whole process, it took us about two years from the time we said we're going to do this to the time we, we launched. And we've got two different stills on our property. One is a small still. It's a 10 liter, about two and a quarter gallons. And it allows us to do a lot of product development. So we spent probably good six, seven, eight months just trying out recipes, trying out different products and doing taste tests here and doing some blending and just really learning about the process. And then we have a bigger still, it's a 200 liter still, about 52 gallons. And once we nail down our recipe and our, our mini still, we, we scale it up into our big one. And when we launched the Dream Machine Distillery, we launched it with six products, all of which were unaged products. So we started with a vodka, two different gins, one of which we, right before we opened, we won a silver medal for in a Finger Lakes International Wine and Spirits competition out of New York. So we had those two gins, and then we had two different rums, a silver and a black rum. And then we also had agave spirit, which is tequila made outside of Mexico. So we we launched with those six. And since then, we've introduced other products as well. We've got a brandy. We've got a single malt whiskey that was aged in oak spirals while we're waiting for barrel aged products to come out, which take two years in a barrel for the majority of them. So we have whiskey in a barrel. We have bourbon. We've got some agave, we've got different rums, we have brandy, which is just distilled wines. We have brandy that's been aged. So we're getting to the point where we can pretty much make any distilled spirit that you can think of or we're working on producing. And it's the really fun part is coming up with these recipes and then introducing them and sharing them with our yes. So you come up with your own recipes for these things? Yeah, yeah. Everything that we produce here is our own recipes. All the beers are our recipes. Same with the wine and the spirits. We do a lot of research to kind of get a general idea of what different whiskeys are made of or brandies and rums. But at the end of the day, we use that for research, but then we create our own recipes. And with the distillery side, having that mini still allows us to play around with recipes at a fairly small expense because you're only producing distill it from a, a two gallon still. So you're not spending a lot of money to, to fill that still up and then run it. And it only takes an hour and a half to two hours. So it gives us the ability if we want to do multiple runs in a day and really hammer out a recipe. So you start with beer, then you have wine, you have a tap room. The tap room has multiple different offerings. You add brunch, 
You've got the banquet facility. Now you have the dream machine with multiple products. Is it fair to say in, in your business that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts? The Yeah, actually it is. And I always tell people that's kind of been our, our secret sauce is the whole is definitely greater than the, the sum of the parts because there's a lot of places that have just the banquet facility. And then there's places that have a tap room. But what we've what we found is there's this great synergy between the two buildings. And we always tell our, our staff this is it's one team, one company. So there, there's a synergy between the two buildings where we see that the customers who maybe come to our tap room for the first time, you know, they enjoy our beverages here and have some food. When you come to the tap room, you have to pass by the banquet facility. And then they find out that, you know, what, what do you guys do up there? Well, we, you know, we host weddings and banquets and fundraisers and stuff. So they might come back. It's like, you know, I, I know somebody that is going to be getting married or they might be getting married. So they end up coming back to that facility or on the reverse, we'll have guests um, visit for a wedding. Maybe guest brother or sisters getting married and they find out there's a tap room in the back. So pre-weddings, they'll, you know, early, well, maybe the, the bride and groom are getting married or having pictures taken, the guests will come into our tap room, have a drink and then go back. And it creates this energy where they're in our tap room, like, well, you know what, I'm gonna, next time I'm in town, I'm gonna stop into the tap room and just go there. So we, we see that where each building kind of sparks interest in, you know, visiting it and, and coming back at a later time. We've actually seen a whole life cycle kind of go through here where a couple might have their first date in our tap room. We've had guests get engaged on our property. We have a very large beer garden, about an acre and a quarter outside where you can sit. And we've had proposals done out there and even inside our tap room. And then they come back here, they get married. And then we've seen them come back for their anniversaries. You know, they'll come in and have an anniversary drink and some food. So there's a synergy between the buildings that just play off each other. And it's something that really helps sustain our business and, and grow it through word of mouth. And we get about 1,200 people a week through our tap room. And then on busy weekends in the banquet facility, we'll have, you know, four or five, 600 people go through the facility. So there's a lot of people on the property. And it's just, it's just this really cool energy that you get between the two buildings. Well, Matt... Let's back up a little bit here as we, we've gone through. This is fascinating to learn about all, all the products you have and the journey you've been on. But back me up a little bit. You graduated from the newly renamed Kettering, although you one year after it was renamed Kettering, but you chose to have GMI on your diploma because you'd been there a lot of years. Yeah. You were a mechanical engineer. You were in the automotive industry. And 10 years later, you made the jump into this industry. Tell me a little bit about how that all happened. Well, it was, it was kind of two things were happening at the same time. So as you mentioned, I graduated in 1998 uh, with mechanical engineering from what was Kettering University, but I'd been there for five years. It's GMI, so that's what my degree says. I had a mechanical engineering degree with a, a focus in manufacturing. So I was in the manufacturing side of the automotive industry for 14 years, which includes the five years that I was at GMI. So I, I had started with a tier three company, moved to tier two. And then the last company I worked for was a, a tier one multi-billion dollar publicly traded company. So a very large corporation where I had worked for smaller family run businesses prior to that. I was doing the corporate thing, making great money and 
lots of benefits and everything that comes with corporate life. But while I had been doing that, when my wife and I lived in Chicago for a few years, I had gone back to school part-time in the evening and got my MBA from DePaul University in downtown Chicago. And while I was there, I took a marketing 501 class, which had me to a marketing plan for a small business. So I did that and it really intrigued me with the idea of small business and entrepreneurship. So I continued taking some some entrepreneurship classes because I was really intrigued with the idea of the impact that just a small marketing plan could have on a business versus working in this multi-billion dollar publicly traded company. So that time at DePaul kind of planted the seed with me. It's that it would be really neat to one day start my own business. So I continued when we moved from Chicago, we moved to Michigan in 2004. And that seed was always there. And I continued working in the auto industry. And finally, it got to the point about 2007 where the corporate rat race kind of got to me. And I just had tired of working in this large corporation and that bug, that seed that had been planned with entrepreneurship was really driving. So I think it's time to kind of jump ship and follow our passion, follow our dreams to start a small business. And that's, you know, we came across the, the idea of opening a winery without having to have the vineyard. So we jumped at it and, you know, went in all in on it. And um, now we just celebrate our 15 years. That's interesting. Obviously, the management, you got an MBA after after Kettering. The management was is sort of easy to see how, how some of those skills would transfer. But what else transfers? What other correlations are there, if any, between mechanical engineer and winemaker? Yeah, I've actually gotten that question quite a bit. Is it, you know, when people find out I'm... I'm... It's, a, it's a fascinating question because <laughs> it, and not many people have done what you've done. Yeah, so it is because a lot of people, you know, I think mechanical engineering is like, well, how does that translate into being a winemaker and brewer and owning your own facility like we do? There's actually a lot that transfers and there's a lot of chemistry involved. There's a lot of processes, um, you know, fluid dynamics is big here when you're dealing with beer, moving it from one place to another. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of process, the manufacturing, all the bottling, all the production that we do. That translates over and just recently I finished redesigning our cooling system for a brewery where I upgraded everything, designed the cooling system, spec'd it out, and then I'm actually still in the process of building it. I'm probably got about 10% left, but that was something that it kind of really intrigued me because it takes me back to how I started that following that, that engineering drive and being able to build my own cooling system where most facilities might have, have to farm that out to a specialist. I kind of like to think that I've got that specialty. We keep that in-house because I'm able to do that and apply that engineering skill that I've got. And then just one of the things that Kettering really taught me, and I've told other students that I've given tours to is because they ask this question a lot, well, how did you become a winemaker if you're an engineer? And I tell them one of the things that Karen taught me, one of the things I really took from it is that it taught you how to learn. And at first I didn't really realize that, that the impact that I had, but as I've grown and as I've gotten into wine, I had to teach myself to make wine, eventually taught myself to make beer and then onto the spirits. The way that Kettering teaches you to learn applies across industries. It doesn't matter what you're doing taking a very, like with a distillery, taking a very large problem, launching a distillery, 
breaking it down into components and just I've always done it just kind of attack each component okay I need to do this well how do I do that and just break it down instead getting stressed out about the big picture break it down into the small components and attack each one of those and if you attack enough of those smaller components then all of a sudden you've, you've solved the problem and that was something that Ketterman really taught is solving problems and learning how to learn and getting through any problems that we have well that's what engineers do is find problems and fix them and i imagine you have with all you got going on i I hesitate to say problems but things that need attention and tweaking on a day-to-day basis yeah yeah all the time and actually we joke so it's myself and my production manager also moonlight as our maintenance department so anybody knows that if something breaks on the property, just leave it for Matt and Randy and they'll fix it. So it might be a chair, it might be, you know, a big piece of equipment, might be something small, but we never farm out any problems until if we look at it and we can't fix it, that's when we'll call on somebody with the specialty of fixing it. But for the most part, we can handle just about any problem that is thrown at us on the property. And your co-founder and co-owner and wife, has graduated from behind the bar to doing what she does best and she's your finance person is that correct yeah so she her background is uh, she's got a finance degree from clemson university and she got that while we were living in south carolina for three years and she serves as our i guess our cfo she does all of our finances and as, as we discussed previously when we talked she's a wizard when it comes to finances she um, knows a lot really knows her stuff really understands finances and is a great partner to have because our deal when we first started is i'll make it she'll sell it so our roles have obviously expanded from just making it and selling it and we have a full team now but it really comes down to i love handling the production side of it and she loves handling the finance side and working with the front of house team in our kitchen to kind of run the customer facing side of the business where I run the the back side of the business with all of our production. And it's been a great partnership, if you can call that. I mean, we're coming up on our 24 year wedding anniversary here in a couple months, but outside of that, it's just been a great partnership to have her capabilities on a, in the finances. And last question, Matt, you said that the vast majority of your 22,000 bottles of wine and and your other products are sold right there on site, but where else and how far flung can I get them if I'm not there and I wanted to get some? Do you do any shipping or you sell anywhere else in Michigan or outside of Michigan? Yeah, we have a fairly limited distribution. It's primarily local restaurants that'll purchase it. And then we have a couple convenience stores in the area, um, but it's very, um, very local. Probably 10 miles is the farthest away that uh, from our facility that you can get it. We do ship wine. We can certainly we can't ship beer, but we definitely ship wine. Um, we're allowed to do that, depending on what state you're in. There are some states we're not allowed to ship to, but there's about 37 that we can. So we are able to ship wine. We made a decision years ago that we really wanted to focus on premise because we had distributed when we first launched the brewery or moved to our new facility and got bigger brewing equipment in 2013. We actually had a distributorship with a company out of Ann Arbor that distributed our beer throughout Southeast Michigan. And it was fun for a while and we really enjoyed it, helped get the brand name out there. But at the end of the day, we really weren't making money doing it. Competing against much larger breweries, much larger wineries, it just made more sense. You know what? Let's just focus on premise. 
don't worry about the offsite stuff. Just focus on premise and giving customers the best possible experience they can when they come to our facility. And ever since we shed the official distribution, things have been great. And we've really been able to focus on premise just to give you that, that top-notch experience from the moment you drive onto our property to the you know to the food that you eat, the beverages you drink. And then we have a phenomenal staff. When you come here a couple of times, they're gonna know your name and what you want to drink or what you typically drink. So we've really focused on that and built up this great team. Well, service is a disappearing art in many field places in America. It is. And, you know, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of talk about the essential employees, non-essential. And unfortunately, hospitality really took a beating on the last couple of years because in many instances, we're deemed non-essential where hospitality is a phenomenal career. It's a phenomenal industry. It reaches all aspects of your life. You know, when you, you go out to eat and, you know, we've built a community here. And to be told non-essential, that you're non-essential is kind of, I know, a slap in the face, to put it lightly. But it, it, it's a phenomenal career. We love it. I love being a part of it and, you know, serving people and creating this great community of customers and employees that we have. So it really is a, it is a great industry to be in. And it's quite a bit different than the corporate life that I came from. But at this point, I, I couldn't see myself doing anything, anything different than I'm doing right now. Well, Matt, I'm traveling right by tomorrow, and I'm going to pick up several bottles of wine and take them to Ohio. So I'm going to be a distributor for you tomorrow. All right. Sounds Uh, sounds fantastic. Matt Shero, thank you so much. Co-founder, co-owner of Fenton Winery and Brewery. Also, Dream Machine Distillery, which is a brand of Fenton uh, Winery and Brewery. Tap Room. Go by and have some some good food, and it's a great spot. And thank you for your time today, and thanks for telling us about, as far as we know, the only winemaker coming out of GMI and Kettering in in the history, in the 104-year history of the school. Yeah, thank you, Tim. It's been a a pleasure talking to you. I do really enjoy uh, sharing what we do here and, and talking about our story. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.